Hi, I'm Kim, and welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation. You know, it amazes me that the military records of a war across several battlefronts in the world and hundreds of thousands of servicemen, and how fast they were able to contact families when a death occurred in battle. Sometimes the families had the details of the death within a few days, and other times it took years for them to find out what had happened. And I am still amazed by the number of stories that are in the Standard Examiner for everyone to read. So today is another amazing story, and I use the word amazing three or four times in every single podcast. I need to find a new word because every story is amazing. Today we're going to talk about Eddie Winkler. Eddie was born on September 14, 1920 in Ogden, to Claude and Bernice Wagstaff Winkler. He was the oldest of five children with two brothers and two sisters. In the 1930 census, they lived at 2835 Reeves in Ogden, which is located between 28th and 29th west of Wall and the last street before what was called Union, which I think now is Pacific Avenue. The census indicates that Claude and Bernice were divorced and that she's a waitress in a cafe and she will later marry Frank Aston. Eddie will graduate from Ogden High School in 1938, and the yearbook indicates that he was a member of the ROTC. When his parents divorced, Claude moved to California, and the 1940 census shows Eddie living in Los Angeles and working as a stock boy at a department store, living in an apartment with four other boys. The first newspaper article was on June 21, 1942, and read Theron Kidd and E. Winkler wed in chapel. Mr. and Mrs. William Craythorne of Hooper announced the marriage of their daughter, Theron Kidd, to Lieutenant Eddie Winkler, son of Mr. and Mrs. Frank Aston of Ogden, Field, Albany, Georgia, at 3 p.m. on June 11th. The couple will make their home in that city temporarily. Then, on December 6th of 1942, an article read, Lieutenant E.E. E. Winkler, now transferred. Second Lieutenant Eddie E. Winkler, 22, son of Charles C. Winkler of Los Angeles and former resident of Ogden, where he was employed by the F.W. Woolworth Company, has been transferred from Turnerfield, Georgia, to the Blytheville Army Airfield. So this is interesting to me because I'm never quite sure of how the stories actually get to the newspaper. I'm sure sometimes they come directly from the military, but in this article, it makes me think that Claude, Eddie's dad, contacted the Standard Examiner. There's no mention in this article about his mom or his stepdad. On February 1st, 1943, the article reads, Eddie E. Winkler goes a step higher. Eddie E. Winkler, 23, son of Claude E. Winkler, West Los Angeles, and Mrs. Frank Aston, 675 Ninth Street in Ogden, has been promoted from second to first lieutenant. It was announced from the office of Colonel Leland S. Stranahan, commanding officer of the Blytheville Army Airfield in Arkansas, where he is a flight instructor. Lieutenant Winkler received his wings and commission on April 24, 1942. He is a graduate of Ogden High School. So I think that this information was sent directly to the standard examiner from um, the military, but I'm not sure exactly how that worked. Then on June 1st, 1943, Eddie E. Winkler will train pilots. Hendricksville, Sebring, Florida reports Lieutenant Eddie E. Winkler, son of Mrs. Frank Aston, only mom this time, 675 9th Ogden, 
recently completed the Flying Fortress Pilot Instructor's Course at the Army Air Force and has been assigned to the Lockbourne Army Base in Columbus, Ohio. At his new station, Lieutenant Weekler will train student officers as first pilots on heavy bombers. He received his primary training at Santa Maria, California, basic at Merced, California, and advanced at Matherfield, California. Then on August 27, 1944, the headline was, Here's Three More Reasons the U.S. is Thrashing the Axis. Three sons of Mrs. Frank Aston and Mr. Claude Winkler are serving in the Army and the Marine Corps of the United States. Captain Eddie E. was recently promoted to first pilot on a B-29. He is stationed with the 20th Air Force in the China-India-Burma Theater of War. He participated in the first Super Fortress raid on Japan and also in succeeding raids. In April of this year, he was assigned overseas. His wife, Theron Kid Winkler, resides in Hooper with her parents. Sergeant Harvey C. Winkler enlisted in the Marine Corps on January 26, 1942. In July of the same year, he was sent overseas. Since then, he has been in the Solomon Islands, New Guinea, and participated in the Battle of Bougainville. At the present time, he is believed to be in Guam. During his 31 months of active service, Sergeant Winkler has not had the opportunity to visit his parents. Private Herbert J. Winkler joined the Marine Corps on December 18, 1943. In April of this year, he was home on a one-week leave. After returning to San Diego, he volunteered for overseas duty. He has been on the ocean twice, the last time for a month. He is presently stationed at El Centro. So the news in the Pacific um, with the Marine Corps on the islands has been horrific, and I'm sure that both his mom and dad had to wonder if Harvey was okay. So in the article, it said that Eddie was in the China-Burma-India theater of war. It was officially established on June 22, 1942, and is often referred to as the Forgotten Theater of World War II. Of all of the Americans who were under arms at the height of World War II, only 2%, or 250,000 personnel, were assigned to the CBI Theater. On June 5, 1944, the 468th flew its first operational mission against the railroad yards at Bangkok, Thailand. And then 10 days later, flying from the Penscon airfield, the group bombed the Imperial Iron and Steel Works in Japan, the opening of the B-29 air offensive against Japan. Eddie had been assigned to the 20th Air Force, the 792nd Bombing Squadron, and the 468th Bombing Group. So in addition to the um, attacks over Japan, the history of the 792nd Squadron also reports that Captain Winkler took parts in 18 trips over the hump. So FYI, there's another movie about this uh, called The Flying Tigers with John Wayne. So just a little bit of history about why they're there. The loss of the Burma Road in 1942 um, to the Japanese necessitated a flying arrangement to get supplies from India to China. The United States had determined that a continuous flow of military supplies into China had to continue. This would enable the Chinese army led by Chiang Kai-shek the U.S. Army 14th Air Force and the China Air Task Force to remain effective and keep pressure on the Japanese occupation troops. 
they wanted to keep the Japanese forces occupied so that they couldn't fight in any other parts of the Pacific. So the supply routes to China um, included the Burma Road, which was also called the Stillwell Road after Joe Stillwell, and the Hump. And that actually describes three different truck convoy ground transportation systems and one airborne transportation system. And they all serve the same purpose, to deliver large quantities of British and American supplies into Western China in support of the nationalist Chinese and allied forces there. So the hump was an unlikely route for regular flight operations due to the high terrain and the extremely severe weather. It crossed a north-south extension of the main Himalaya mountains that run south through Burma and western China. On the very north end of the extension, the terrain exceeded 20,000 feet in height, and average elevations lowered to the south but did not fall below 12,000 feet for approximately 140 miles. The routes flown fell between those two extremes. This operation was the first sustained, long-range, 24-hour, around-the-clock, all-weather military aerial supply line in history. It was a start-from-scratch operation that had no precedent. Even with the opening of an alternate ground route in 1945, the hump was the principal supply route until the war finally ended. During its time, the hump operations carried more tons of cargo over a given route than any other aviation operation. More planes and more cargo were flown in the hump operations than any civilian aviation airline in the world at that time, and it flew them over the most rugged mountain terrain in the world. But its operational losses, which were higher than any of the non-combatant aviation units in World War II, exceeded those of many combat units. It flew unarmed during the most dangerous days through marauding Japanese air power, and it carried the precious needed cargo eastward during every hour of the day and of the night. And the danger wasn't only from the Japanese combat planes, but from bad weather. Severe weather existed on the hump almost year-round. The monsoon season with heavy clouds, fierce rain, and embedded severe thunderstorms with turbulence so severe that it damaged aircraft, existed from around May into October. The late fall and winter flying weather was better with many VFR or visual flight rule days. However, heavy ground fogs with ground visibilities down to zero-zero occurred almost nightly during the early winter, and severe thunderstorms still occurred over the route on an irregular basis. The winter winds aloft were also extreme, often exceeding over 100 miles per hour. Most night flying had to be done using solely cockpit instruments from takeoff due to the lack of any ground or horizon references until they were well into western China. On September 12, 1944, there was an article in the Standard Examiner, Pilot of Superfort on Missing List. Captain Eddie E. Winkler, husband of Mrs. Theron Kid Winkler of Hooper, has been missing over China since August 26th and that was the day before the article about the three brothers appeared in the paper. Captain Winkler is a pilot on a B-29 Superfortress and has been serving overseas for the past five months. His squadron was among the first to go into action against Japan. He was stationed with the 20th Air Force in the China-India-Burma theater of war. In April of this year, he was assigned overseas a brother, Sergeant Harvey C. Winkler, is in a hospital on Guam with malaria, Mrs. Aston learned on September 5th. So here's where things get really complicated. He was reported missing on August 26th, 
But then he shows up to his unit in late September. And he actually wrote a journal that was published on July 5th, 1945 in the Standard Examiner about his time in China. The experiences of an American crew who bailed out on August 26th over China last year. His diary begins with the pulling of the ripcord. The next thing I remember, I was sitting on the ground, my jungle kit near me, my chute behind me. I don't know how I got out of the harness. I must have been knocked out for a while. When I came to, I heard Thompson, my engineer, calling from over another mountain. I later found out that I had been unconscious for about an hour. When I answered, I heard many Lolos nearby. We had landed in the Lolo country, and it was fortunate for us that we did not encounter them. Later on, a well-informed Chinese man told us that Lolos are thieves and kidnappers, and they have been known to take men off the Lido Road and make slaves of them. If you do as they command, they are not bestial, but if you resist, they will torture you by burning your feet and depriving you of food. If you remain good for a year, they will get you a wife. The women always come from another village, as the Lolos are proud of their people and will not intermarry. The average Lolo is bigger and stronger than the Chinese men. Most of them wear goatskin clothing, which makes them look primitive. The American flyers were guided out of the wilderness in which they fell by friendly Chinese, and after a long river journey through the mountains, they approached Fulin. The diary then continues. We are getting close to Fulin. The high mountains have been passed and we are in a valley. You can tell we are coming to a city, for there are over a hundred Chinese walking along the riverbanks and looking at us. They have never before seen white people. General Young Leon is bringing us to his town. He is chief of the city. We are now at General Young's house. The first good meal was all Chinese food. It was good. At noon, we went for a walk through the town. It is the largest one I have seen in China. Whenever I sit down to write, I have 10 to 50 Chinese watching me. They watch us eat, sleep, and drink. The cost of living here is extremely high. Many items in the stores cost 5 to 10 times the price paid in the United States. I don't see how the poor even get along, even though they are always in rags and eat very little. September 1st, 1944, we are getting a little tired of Fulin. The newness has worn off, and we will be glad to be on our way to get back. Mr. Young is doing everything possible to make us comfortable. Last night he had the town banned out. It was very interesting, but soon we had had enough. A delegation from the north of China just paid a call to honor us. These people are very grateful to the Americans. I feel sorry for these people. There seems to be four classes. There is the rich, like General Young. He owns most everything and everybody. Then the merchants, as a rule, make good money and eat and dress well. The class I feel the most pity for are the educated. Their pay is so low. They are the teachers, engineers, doctors, and the people of that class. Many of them make the equivalent of one American dollar a day. Then there are the poor who are dressed in rags. Not until late in September did Captain Winkler and his companions get out of China to rejoin their fellow flyers. And this was the last of that information that was in the newspaper until April 12, 1945. And the headlines read, Two Mothers Get Their Sons Air Medals. Posthumous Air Medal Awards were presented at retreat ceremonies at Hillfield on Tuesday to Mrs. Charlotte B. Jacobs, And just to note, Mrs. Jacobs loses two sons in World War II, and that story will be upcoming in a a new episode. And Mrs. Theron K. Winkler, Hooper, 
in honor of their sons. Unfortunately, they listed his wife as his mother in this article, but they will correct it the next day. Captain Winkler displayed great courage as well as untiring efforts and meticulous care in flights over the extremely rugged terrain from bases in China where unfavorable weather made flying hazardous. He performed his duties in such a manner as to reflect great credit to his command and the American Air Force, his citation said. So this is really interesting. When you read his service card, it says missing, and then it says safe, and then it says killed, all within six weeks. So a memoriam by his bomber group says, on October 1st, 1944, Aircraft 42-6138, piloted by Captain Winkler of the 792nd Bomb Squadron, crashed on a routine cargo mission to the advanced base under circumstances that left little doubt that all aboard perished. The craft departed Karakpur, and I know that I just slaughtered that name, either September 30th or October 1st. The last radio contact was over Mayakinya, another name that's not right, on October 1st, the craft crashed into the Omai Mountain, southwest of their designation, due to weather. It is assumed that all crews and passengers were killed instantaneously, and what remains that were found were buried in a nearby cemetery. And as we've talked about before, the families had the choice of having their um, remains back to the United States or buried in a military cemetery. So his records indicate that his remains were returned to Ogden on February 10th, 1948, on board a U.S. transport. On February 20th, 1948, his obituary was published in the Standard Examiner. Funeral services for Captain Eddie E. Winkler, 24, who was killed October 1st, 1944, over China in an airplane crash will be conducted Saturday at 2 p.m. at the Alteris Marchuary, 836 36th Street, by Bishop Edward Baird of the LDS 21st Ward. Military honors at the graveside will be in charge of the VFW. Then, after listing all of his training and military service, the obituary says, from August 26th to September 20th, 1944, he was reported missing when his plane went down in the mountains of China. He returned to his unit and was killed on October 1st. Surviving are his widow, his mother and stepfather, two brothers and two sisters, Harvey C. Winkler, Herbert J. Winkler, Mrs. Juanita Rogerson, and Mrs. Shirley Keltson Ogden, six half-brothers and half-sisters, Frank, James, and Robina Ashton Ogden, Marjorie, Marvin, and Irvin Winkler, Los Angeles, and a grandfather, John Wagstaff of Ogden. Well, there you have it, the story of Eddie Winkler, again, I never know where the story is going until I do the research, and there's so much information available out there that I'm always surprised at what I find. Thanks for joining. Be sure to like Weber County's Greatest Generation on Facebook so you can be notified of new episodes, and the podcast is also available on iTunes.